Defense Matters, a podcast about defense, technology, and the power of that movement. An Israel Defense production in association with IAI. Hello and welcome to Defense Matters, a new podcast about technology, security, and everything in between. I'm your host, Aaron Heller, and I hope you'll join us as we delve into all elements of defense in this new podcast. Each episode, we're going to talk about the latest in the world of military affairs, cybersecurity, and much, much more. In addition to the challenges of today, we're also going to be looking ahead at the technologies that will shape the battlefield of tomorrow. And we're also going to take a brief nostalgic look back at legendary affairs of yesterday. To kick off episode one, uh, we're going to dive right into the major events of the day, which are obviously now the war in Ukraine. We're more than a month into the war, and there's obviously a lot to unpack from the fighting there, the implications here and elsewhere. We're going to talk about the actual fighting on the battlefield, the technology involved, uh, how cybers played a key role in the war, and uh, of course, the limitations of military force and the post-Cold War military balance that we're seeing right now. And finally, we're going to discuss the Israeli angle, how it's all connected to the Iran nuclear deal, um, the Israeli mediation efforts, and much more. For our first guest today to discuss all this and much more is somebody who can address all these issues, and we're happy he can join us and be our first guest, retired military general Amos Gilad, the former top defense ministry official and currently the executive editor, uh, director of the Institute of Policy and Strategy at Reichman University in Herzliya. Thank you for joining us, General Gilad. Hello. All right, well, let's kick it right off with just an overview. We're talking about the war in Ukraine. Pretty unprecedented what we're seeing there right now. We're a month into it. What's your overview of the situation? Or what's your takeaway a month into it? Where have we been? Where are we going? First lesson I do have is to understand the other side. The Russians have shared the message that they would never tolerate Ukraine as independent, democratic, pro-Western, with free economy along their border. And Ukraine is considered as part, integral part of Russia. So Mr. Putin, the president of Russia, has again and again clarified that he would never tolerate it. And he has done it in Chechnya, in Georgia, known more as Gruzia, even in Belarusia, even in Kazakhstan, to imp- and Syria, of course, to implement his policy and vision about great Russia by using brutal power, military power. And that's the main lesson. Second lesson is that I think that the Russians are crossing red lines <clears throat> in Ukraine and brutality is becoming a feature, a major feature of, uh, of this war that it's very difficult to see the end of it. So there are many, many lessons, military, strategic, and political. For Israel, I think, the main well, issue let's, let's is Let's talk Iran. about Israel. I want to mention that because this, is the, this looks okay, like a European war. About, about Ukraine, the moment the West, led by United States of America, is avoiding with portraying or putting red line to Russian aggression against a sovereign country, it means it's like green light uh, to implement their brutal uh, policy. And I cannot imagine any military intervention. And it's very worrying that on the table, chemical, biological, and even 
Tactical. What does it mean, tactical? Tactical nuclear weapon is on the table as an option. And it's supported by leading intelligence services as an option. If it happens, the next war, wherever, will be without limits. Mm-hmm. Conventional will become conventional. And the Russians have begun by poisoning uh, opponents and rivals uh, of the Russian uh, regime uh, with nerve gas and even uh, radioactive weapons. Well, these are all pretty unprecedented things. It's something that it's hard to imagine a month ago, and people starting to talk already about World War III potentially here. I mean, these are really uh, historic times. And you'd think originally it would just be a European event, an American uh, and, and Russia affair, but and that Israel could finally sit on the sidelines of something like this. But there is an Israeli angle, and we've seen the implications in a bunch of different ways. Let's talk about that a little bit. First of all, about the shifting alliances. Uh, today we have a... Uh, a summit, really, in southern Israel in which you've got four Arab foreign ministers, the American uh, Secretary of State here meeting in Israel um, against a backdrop of a potential new accord uh, with the Iranian nuclear deal. How is all of the fighting in Ukraine affecting all of these issues that are happening here in our region? We are facing, together with Arab countries, who could imagine? That's why this conference is so important. We are facing brutal strategic threat by Iran against Israel. The goal is to exterminate Israel and vis-a-vis the Arab uh, countries is to change the regimes and to weaken the Sunni Arab world by brutal attacks on economic, civilian, innocent targets with armed UAVs, missiles, rockets, and so on. The Iranians are doing their best to develop these weapons at the expense of uh, failed states. And parallel to it, they are determined to develop one day nuclear weapon. A nuclear weapon will enter this Middle East, poor Middle East, to nuclear race. And for Israel, all this, uh, um, it's very significant because we need to be prepared for bloody confrontation with Iran that might come or will come sooner or later. Because if you combine the strategic declared intentions by Iran with the capabilities they are developing with huge resources at the expense of internal needs of the Iranian public, it means that we are on collision course with them. The good news is, first of all, we are going to develop and upgrade the capabilities and the might of the IDF. That's a very important. That's the main guarantee. That's the main lesson for Ukraine. If Ukraine did have a real power, the Russians would never dare to invade. Secondly, parallel to military power, you need wisdom. And we are developing uh, together with Arab countries that used to be our worst enemies, unbelievable alliance, undeclared, unofficial, but security, defense alliance, uh, that including uh, many areas in order to cope efficiently with the Iranians. The Iranians, in, in their brutal ways, they are uniting the whole Middle East against them. Parallel to other threats like the ex- Sunni Islamist extremism and so on. So altogether, I think we are entering a new era. One of the impacts 
Well, let me ask you about the impacts of that, because it really seems like this is a new era where Iran is galvanizing the region together against it. And now there's all this talk about a new nuclear deal with Iran. So two parts about that. First of all, is that something that eventually we think will, as far as Israel is concerned, delay them? Uh, or is it something which Israel is accepting it's going to happen? And the second part is, how is the fighting in Ukraine changing all of those uh, um, analysis of the situation? Is it helping Israel versus Iran, or is it harming Israel versus Iran? The Ukraine crisis shows very clearly that we need to be prepared for brutal war or aggression or offensive by Iran against Israel, against the most sensitive civilian areas and strategic um, targets. And if, if I'm right about this assessment, we need to develop, besides the fantastic, excellent Air Force that we are having, combined with unique qualitative intelligence and unique cyber capabilities, we need to reassess again the role in future war of the ground forces. In my imagination, if we get attacked tomorrow by two or 3,000 rockets and UVs per day, we need to be able to take over Lebanon, for example, <clears throat> because Lebanon is not sovereign country anymore. This is Hezbollah in uh, empty, a sovereign framework that is called the Republic of Lebanon. But the government of Lebanon, the president of Lebanon, are not really controlling Lebanon. And, and uh, like cancer, the Hezbollah is developing with a huge financing by Iran and support by Iran, revolutionary guards, capabilities. And you can find the same model in Syria and Yemen and in Iran. So obviously this situation here puts Israel in a bit of a, a pickle and it can't be just like most what Western countries are taking this strong line against Russia. It's put Israel in an unlikely situation as a mediator. And we've seen Israel having this mediation efforts. I think uh, Prime Minister Bennett's the only one really having direct channel both with Zelensky and with Putin. Do you think that these mediation efforts have any chance to bear fruit? And, uh, and what does it do for Israel to be in this unique position? Is it a positive development that Israel is sort of on the sidelines or is there a danger of it falling on the wrong side of history here? Very interesting question. I don't think that Israel can solve or mediate really between Russia and Ukraine. There is a lot of criticism against our prime minister that is dealing with this mediation. I do support this initiative. I do think it serves uh, the best interest of Israel to put an end to this conflict. And it keeps open our channels with Ukraine and Russia. And it's very important because Israel is in a very complicated situation. Emotionally, humanitarianly speaking, my heart with Ukraine. And that's why I'm in favor of opening our gates to Jews by law and to any Ukraine that wants to, uh, to, to come to Israel. I think it's humanitarian, it's, it's important, strategically important, politically important, so on. On the other hand, we cannot take hostile uh, steps against Russia because the Russians are giving Israel, based on common ground and common goal, uh, for example, in Syria, free hand to attack the Iranians. Without the operations, allegedly, of our Air Force combined with intelligence, we would face 
dramatic threat from Lebanon, from the north, and from Syria, from northeast. That's different story. And I think we are doing there not complete, uh, completely successful, but very useful uh, operation. Well, it's, it's a tough balancing act, isn't it? I mean, Israel, you're saying, is trying to do what it can humanitarily and diplomatically for Ukraine. But militarily, Ukraine is specifically asking Israel for aid, for iron domes, for giving them material. And Israel can't do that, right? No, we, we can, but it's, it's not recommended to do it because we will find ourselves in confrontation with the Russians that might limit us in Syria and other places that are not mentioned, so I don't want to elaborate it. Look, if Iran attacks Israel tomorrow, who will support us? Nobody. We will be alone. And we need to preempt the build-up of Iranian uh, capabilities to attack Israel. And one of the major uh, fronts is Syria. And in Syria, we are enjoying free hand from the Russians that can limit us. And there are other areas that I don't want to mention that we are dependent on good will of Russia. So if you ask me whether we need to share with Ukraine military support, no, I don't think so. The Ukrainians need to rely on NATO, United States. I think they not think. We know that they are sharing with uh, Ukraine very important uh, uh, very significant weapons like Javelin, like Stinger, like others. Um, I think this is a mission of NATO. Anyway, even NATO is not um, considering even joining Ukraine to NATO or to EU from the EU point of view. The military support needs to come from the West. We need to be part of humanitarian support, and the idea of mediation, as long as we don't think we can put an end to this conflict, it's uh, positive more than negative. It's interesting. It seems like there's a bit of a feedback loop here. Some of the things we're seeing in Ukraine and Russia are things we've seen before here. Like now, even recently, we've seen cyber attacks against Israeli government offices. We've seen hundreds of Iranian drones that were recently destroyed. Where do you see the things perhaps we're seeing a preview over there of things that might happen here in the future as far as the drones, as far as the cyber attacks? Do you feel that this fighting in Russia and Ukraine in some ways providing us a preview of the things we might see here in the near future? We need to learn the lessons from this brutal war, but I need to praise our defense system. We are aware of the cyber dimension for a long time. We, have, we are in the first league of the World League in all three dimensions of cyber offensive that we talk very little, rightly so, defense and intelligence. <laughs> I think we are, um, yeah, I mean, we need to develop and develop and develop our capabilities, but we are very impressive. The whole world is asking our advice and support. And I think that vis-a-vis uh, -vis Iran and other enemies, we are in very satisfactory position. However, we need to acknowledge this uh, cyber is new dimension in future war. And my impression is that the IDF and the intelligence services and the whole state of Israel very aware of it and are deployed significantly against this threat. It does not mean we will not be hurt by it, but it means that we are at least 
aware of this threat and doing our best to be able to cope with it. Well, finally, I think I have a final question just about to wrap up looking at the strategic impact of this war in Europe. Really kind of unthinkable things are happening there. We've talked about various elements of it. Um, it's the biggest fighting we've seen in Europe, perhaps since World War II. How do you see this sort of playing out? I mean, everybody assumed at the beginning that Russia was just going to overpower Ukraine. It hasn't happened. They're at a certain kind of stalemate. How do you see this playing out? And what are the consequences that could be afterwards depending on the result for Israel? First of all, we need to be militarily powerful. Militarily, I'm concluding, it must conclude all aspects of power, military power. We are alone. If Ukraine was powerful, the Russians would never consider invasion. But the other, on the other hand, the Ukrainians are surprisingly showing unique capabilities of resistance. And that will be learned along. I, I don't see the Russians fulfilling their wishes. They will not end this conflict the way they have dreamt of. I do think they are upset with the gap between expectations and performance. Why? First of all, the morale looks to me in the Russian army very low. What, what the Russians are doing in Ukraine? Why to invade the Ukraine? I mean, there is no reason for it. My conclusion since long time, in Israel we have won when the war or the confrontation was based on consensus. And only initiatives that are not relevant to our DNA, like the first Lebanon war, in a way failed. So my first conclusion, we need to be powerful and be prepared to cope mainly with the main enemy that is determined to exterminate Israel. We can deter this enemy if they get the impression that we are powerful. Secondly, we need to be smart as part of our power to take this golden opportunity to develop the undeclared alliance with Arab countries who could imagine they used to be our worst enemies. And never forget the United States of America is a major pillar in our national security. Right. Well, thank you very much, uh, General Amos Gilab, retired general, our first guest on Israel Defense. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's a great privilege and honor. Thank you. And we'll be right back for a section on Game Changers right after this. Break, break, break. All right. We're back with our Game Changers section, which along with Israel Aerospace Industries, we take a look at the technology of tomorrow and how it will affect the future battlefield. And today I'm happy that we're joined by Aviv Kennelbaum, the Business Development and Marketing Manager for IAI's Space Division. Aviv, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great. Well, again, our theme today is Ukraine. And specifically, let's talk about your field, about space and satellite technology. We're seeing that's a big element of this war. What have we seen so far as far as uh, satellite tracking on the battlefield for intelligence purposes? And how big of a role is that played in the fighting? So ever since the war began, the, the Ukraine air zone or airspace is a very, very dangerous place to be. Plus also the ground, uh, the ground territory. And actually, the space has become the... The, the almost the only way for countries to get information of Ukraine, um, because the satellites they are not flying into inside the air territory of Ukraine. They are not uh, posing any threat or immediate threat to the Russians or the Ukrainians, and they can fly over Ukraine or actually hover over Ukraine and uh, and uh, and see the territory below. 
Uh, another advantage of satellites is that they can see large-scale areas. Using a single satellite, you can take very large-scale areas and you fly over um, um, very long paths over Ukraine. You can get a lot of information using uh, one satellite. We need to remember, in our newspapers, we usually see the images that are coming from, let's say, the Western world. Uh, but these images go both, both ways. The Russians have their satellites as well, the, and the, the West world have, have the satellites, and everybody are taking images of Ukraine now to get their own benefits and their own intelligence to, to their own needs. I'm guessing the Russians have an advantage in this, um, but now, I mean, we have this thing called nano-satellites, right, where you have smaller nations who have more of these resources. Can you talk a little bit about how widespread this is and uh, how, what kind of a role these things play in warfield? Nano-satellites, per se, are, are not the main, um, they're not the main satellites used for reconnaissance, okay? But we can use small satellites, very small satellites, um, which are small enough to fit, you can fit many in a single launcher, uh, but they are large enough to have um, enough resolution to get intelligence from the ground. So actually, uh, IAI, instead of Israel, uh, we're building small satellites ever since we began, ever since our first launch back in 1988. Um, our satellites are very small, and even though they're small, they have big aperture and they can take images of high resolution. And um, another advantage of smaller satellites is their lower price. Uh, in this way, you can, you can put more satellites in, in orbit. And you have higher revisits over your area of interest. Because if you have a single satellite, it orbits uh, the world, and the world revolves beneath the satellite. So you have only a small amount of revisit times over your area of interest every day. You put more satellites, you have more revisits, you put more satellites, you can have almost constant uh, hold of the ground. So these are the advantages of nanosatellites. You can have high revisits and uh, still use you know, the, the space in space to see the ground. Well, it's um, interesting when you think back to the uh, Cold War and how it ended when we talked about Star Wars. So we're talking about space is usually supposed to be a matter of cooperation between countries. We know in the International uh, Space Station, Americans and Russians work together. Um, how do you see the fighting in Ukraine playing out as far as cooperation in space? Time will tell, of course, obviously. But um, the, what we see now is we see declaration from both, declarations from both sides. Uh, or maybe stopping collaboration, maybe continuing collaboration. We don't know what, what will be. But as for now, there is no other possibility but to collaborate. There are now uh, American or Western uh, astronauts and Russian cosmonauts in the International Space Station. And actually, tomorrow or in the coming days, an American astronaut is supposed to go back from the International Space Station to Earth using an, a Russian, a Russian um, spacecraft and land in Russia. Okay, so they don't have uh, any other choice for now, and hopefully they will continue collaborating in the future. In the future, because when you want to advance humanity and you want to use space for for the advancements of the of you know of the, all the population on Earth, you have to have the collab this collaboration because these are mega projects. They amount to the billions, and it's very difficult for a single country, even if it's the U.S. The US or China or or Russia, to do it by themselves. Uh, hopefully, the collaboration will, uh, will continue in space and it will be, continue to be a place for peace. 
Well, thank you, Aviv. That gives us a nice insight about the final frontier and appreciate you coming here with us, uh, joining us on uh, Defense Matters. And uh, that does it for our first episode of Defense Matters. We hope you enjoyed it and you'll join us again. Please follow us wherever you get your podcast. Until then, I'm Aaron Heller saying good night and we'll see you next time on Defense Matters.